have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, talking bobbins about tabletop RPG from back in the day. This is a micro grog pod with extra bits that didn't quite fit into the third episode, which was all about Traveller, science fiction role playing in the far future. It's one of those supplements that you get rid of on eBay and then wish you hadn't a few months later. This micro grog pod is filled with the abandoned cargo that didn't quite fit into our fat trader, including the Games Master screen, or in this case, the referee screen, where our role on a table containing some of the published highlights of Traveller from back in the day, and select five for discussion with Judge Blythe, the resident rules lawyer. Our bargain hunter, Ed in his shed, has provided the current pricing indexing in case you wanted to chase some of these supplements on eBay. Finally, I will be emptying my sack of post and reading some listener contributions. Traveller has awakened a great deal of interest from listeners. Many people have sent me some of their experience of playing some of the published supplements. I'll share them with you. They're great. There's also been a lively discussion on the Grognard Files com too. I'm really interested in how people were introduced to the hobby, how they began the games they played. It's clear that there's a great synchronicity of experience across the UK, indeed across the world. Take this submission from Frank, for example. As a German of about your age, it's extremely interesting for me to get a British perspective of the olden days. I started gaming a bit later than your group did, but there are parallels. The history of role-playing games in Germany goes back quite a way. The first German RPG was Midgard in 1981, based on an older proto-role-playing game called Empires of Magira, 1977. The game had developed from a massive multiplayer miniature war game. My history with RPGs doesn't go quite back that far. I started playing Daz Swartz Org in 1986, but soon switched over to the German edition of Middle-Earth Roleplaying. It must have been 1988 that I first heard of Call of Cthulhu, off Cthulhu's Spur, having read a couple of H.P. Lovecraft's short stories. I've been playing the game ever since, although unfortunately very sporadically. The first RuneQuest edition that got translated into German was RuneQuest Deluxe, 3rd edition, in 1991. This remained the only ever translation of RuneQuest into German until recently. I just read that there's a translation of RuneQuest 6 available now. Back in the day, I remember playing a game or two of RuneQuest but getting distracted by Shadowrun, 1st edition. I believe Germany is still the second biggest market for role-playing games worldwide. The hobby picked up early 
and from the beginning there was a steady flow of translation of foreign RPGs. It used to be, and still is, fairly easy to get new games in their original language. Additionally, there's quite a lot of German RPGs out there. Someone even made the jump into other languages. I've not been living in Germany for more than 10 months since 1998, and therefore only have a glancing knowledge of the current RPG scene in my country of birth and youth. For at least another 8 months I call Atlanta home. I've tried and lived in a couple of different countries and continents. I've always found that role-playing gamers to be very accepting and easy to spend time gaming with. I hope to keep gaming into old age. Thanks for the submission, Frank. I think many of us are plotting a retirement that allows us to escape back to our youth. There's more from the postbag later. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. The Games Master Screen! Hello, I'm joined by His Honour, Judge Blythe. Welcome aboard the Free Trader Grog Pod. Hello, Dirk. As my learned friend can afford high passage, uh, I've got some uh, luxuries and comforts for you here. There's a there's a reconstituted groat burger. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, a glass of Zillion wine. <laughs> it's my favourite. <laughs> and you'll need this pot plant for your uh, stateroom <laughs> for reasons I, I can't explain. So kick back because we're in jump, so we're here for a week. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to turn the tables on you today because back in the day you were our go-to uh, referee for Traveller and now it's my turn. So I'm going to hand you the cursed dice cup okay. and 2d6. Now they look like 2d6 but for the purposes of today they're going to be a d66. What, what exactly is that? does that mean, Dirk. Could you ex explain it to me? A d66, in the mongoose rules... They use a D66, um, it's a bit like a percentile thing, so the, the white dice is your tens and your red dice is the units, and you can't change that now because I've set that. Okay. That. So it's a D66. It, I, I just, why don't they just use a D100? Why do they insist on using D6s every single game. opportunity? Other, other dice are available. I think they need to be aware of that. Well, I've got a table with 36 things on it. Well, so. I, I, yeah, all right. But you can buy D20s and D10s. They're readily available. <laughs> There's no need to stick to the D6 all the time. It's it's a percentile system, but on a base 6. Yes. Right. Which is the obvious way to go, isn't it? Rather than just buy a percentile dice. For which you can buy quite cheaply on Amazon. Or anywhere. Other retailers. Anywhere. Well, I'm going to put this... I'm going to wreck this uh, referee screen. Because behind here, it's for my eyes only. Okay. okay? So I've got them all on here, um, some that you recognise, Twilight's Peak, uh, Andy Slack once said that that was the best adventure for any RPG. Okay, I beg to differ there, I think. <laughs> and Anik Nova, do you remember Anik Nova? Yeah, I do, yeah. yeah. Anik Nova, Broadsword, that's yeah. on there. Yeah, yeah. Now you, you had all these, didn't you, but... They were relatively unusual. I can't remember playing any of these supplements. No, and I, I think this is a funny thing about the Traveller Adventures. They, they were odd things, really. Um, there were some positives. I mean, they were quite cheap. 
So they weren't uh, they weren't expensive in the sense that RuneQuest or other stuff was expensive to buy supplements. So they yeah. were kind of, for, for want of a better phrase, pocket money prices when we were kind of 13, 14, 15 years old. But I think one of the drawbacks with them is that they were at times a bit sketchy. Um, uh, and they seemed at times to emphasise some details in the adventures that were a bit boring and skirted over more interesting bits. So they were, they were yeah. odd things, really. And I think the reason you can't remember playing them and the reason I can't remember playing them in, in detail is because I think what I did is I used bits and pieces of them. So I can remember getting an adventure from Games Workshop, going home, reading it, and thinking, well, it's all right, but it needs a bit of work, it needs a bit of this and a bit yeah. of that, a bit adding and maybe a bit taking away. So they were odd things in that sense, that they, they were like frameworks almost. That's the way we used them. So we did play them but perhaps not in the form that they were really intended. Intended to, yeah. And I think uh, I think Traveller more than some of the other stuff, because other games did this as well, but they always insisted on having large parties, didn't they? And mm. we didn't have yeah. those available, yeah, yeah. did we, yeah. too? So it always needed some tinkering and playing around. Yeah, and I, and I remember um, later on, I mean, we, we've talked about this before, that we, we weren't really into D&D until later on in our kind of role-playing lives yeah. um, and I remember buying some D&D modules um, after I'd been games mastering Traveller for a bit and we, we did a few of the D&D modules and I remember being quite impressed by how much stuff that module gave you to run it, it really gave you everything you needed to run the game mm. um, and I think Traveller stuff was notable sometimes by its absence of clarity and detail, it sort of lacked some of that and that was a bit tricky, and I think I did. I kind of cannibalised those adventures and used bits and pieces of them. Well, that's a good setup for this uh, uh, section then, because we're going to be looking at supplements. <laughs> <laughs> but let's uh, let's have a have a look, and we'll uh, have a roll on the table. Let's roll for the first time. Here you go. Yeah, here we go. And that's uh, thirty-five. Thirty-five. Okay. So look on my table here, and that's. 15mm Citadel Miniatures. Oh, yes. Yeah. So do you recognise this Jim Burns uh, box here? And these yeah. Little, little box? yeah, I do. I remember the 15mm figures, yeah. So this was back in a time when uh, miniatures sold a game mm. rather than game selling miniatures. Yes. Because Games Workshop got the licence in the early 80s and they got their sister company, Citadel, to produce a box sets with 20 figures in each box. And there were adventurers... The military, uh, ships, crew, civilians, and aliens. So, which of those did you have? I had them all. You had them. All? I had them all. Okay. I had them all. I, and it's an interesting thing, the traveller miniatures, um, because you know, I mean, we we came to gaming through the miniatures because when we were sort of eleven or twelve, we we noticed the miniatures in the local toy shop, and they were kind of intriguing things. Not yeah. not the traveller miniatures; these were the more kind of citadel fantasy stuff uh, and that's what drew us to role playing really um but i think we quickly not so much went off miniatures but we we soon realized the problems with miniatures in that you know you only had one more account in room quest and we encountered five so you know you used a couple of skeletons as stand-ins and that kind of thing so the miniatures kind of although we used them for a few years uh, in games like RuneQuest and D&D &D and what have you, they kind of faded out a little bit fairly quickly. Yeah, but I think they tended to detract from the game yes, rather than enhance yeah. it. But I think the Traveller miniatures are a bit different because one of the difficulties with Traveller, and we've just touched on this, is that you know the rule books 
uh, and the supplements had very few illustrations in, very few, if any, illustrations in some instances. Um, so you didn't really know what, you know, a vac suit or, you know, looked like or battle armour looked like. You didn't have a sense of what anything looked like, but the traveller miniatures really were the, were the touchstone for what it looked like, you know. Yeah. And that's why I think they were more important than any other miniature because, you know, you can kind of imagine a goblin, you can kind of imagine a, a paladin in armour in a fantasy game, but, you know, what does a, you know, what does an Aslan look like? What does a, you know, what yeah. does an Imperial trooper look like? And, and whilst they weren't, I mean, I suppose they weren't definitive, but they gave you a sort of look and a feel of what things look like. And that was always a thing that was lacking a little bit in Traveller, you know, which again is a is a theme of this podcast and yeah. and the previous one, that there was always that problem of what did it look like? What did people wear? Yeah. I think as well, because you kind of dedicated your life to those med- miniatures as well. <laughs> a lot of them. On my eyesight. Yeah. Yes. Because <laughs> you, you painted them diligently, didn't you? I did. And uh, I think that was part of your perseverance with travelling because you put so much time into it that you, you actually you, yes. you kept, kept going on it. Yeah, that's I true. Think, I think looking, I mean, they've got some uh, wonderfully descriptive names, um, these figures. And I remember you used to build adventures around some of the figures. Mm. So the characters yeah. of the figures became yeah. characters. Yeah. And yeah. Things. So you, you remember this little pot-bellied merchant master with a snub pistol? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. I think he was. I think he played two roles. I think he was an arch villain at one point. Yeah. And I think in a later adventure, he was your character, wasn't he? He was. Yeah. yeah. I, I I used to remember him as the arch, but I can't remember the name of him. But I just remember when he turned up. Good so some other good ones here. Um, do you do you remember the android female companion? I do. Yes. Yes. Funnily enough, yeah. <laughs> it just it just looked like a a person. It just it? like a woman, yeah. But you said it's an android. All <laughs> oh, right. You could have said that all the figures were androids, couldn't you? Uh, another favourite of mine was the con artist with a suitcase. Con artist with a suitcase, and I, I, if anything sums up the future. Painted future world that traveller paints. It's con artist with a suitcase because <laughs> a con artist in the far future wouldn't have a suitcase, would it? You'd be sad. Con artists now don't have suitcases. They sit behind computer terminals telling people that to invest in something in Nairobi, don't they? You know, but in <laughs> a thousand years in the future, they'll have a suitcase. <laughs> and you do you still have the minis? I do. Yeah, I've wow. still I've still got them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, in this envelope here, I've got this from uh, Ed's Bargain Shed. <laughs> he can't be here with us today, but he's okay. provided the price index for uh, some of these uh, traveller supplements that we're going to cover today. So I'm going to play a little game because we are in hyperspace and we've got mm-hmm. a long time to yeah, go. Yeah. And yeah. people can play this at home. I'm going to give you th- three possible um, figures, amounts that these could be worth. So we're talking here, unpainted, not box, not com- not not complete even. Not even in the box. Not even in the box. Not even in the box. Oh, right, right, okay. okay. Yeah. And this is uh, going price uh, on eBay at the moment. So is it one, mm-hmm. £25? Pounds? Okay. Is it two, £60? Pounds? Or is it three, £40? Pounds? Well, I'm going to, I think... As with all these things, it's safe to go for the middle. The middle score, I'm going to say forty pounds. 
Forty pounds. That is correct. Well that's done. Correct. Yeah. And well, that's just for one box. That's for one box. I'm rich. You are rich. Yeah. Well, I'm not rich, but you don't have to sell your kidney to feed your kids anymore. Well, that's that's the... I'd sell the other one. You mean? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's uh, roll on the table again. Okay, and uh, we've got uh, thirty-six. Okay, and that's scouts. Oh right. So this is the book about the explorers mm. of the Imperium. But before we discuss the supplement, perhaps we should talk about the Imperium, which is the ready-made star system. I think we said previously in a previous episode that the initial concept for travel is that um, referees would build their own backgrounds, but um, in, in time, uh, it started to come with its own ready, ready-made uh, background. So this, it's traditional for typical. Uh, traveller games to be set in the Third Imperium, which was established 1100 years ago. A human-dominated interstellar empire encompassing more than 11,000 worlds in about 21 sectors. Um, I suppose that's more than enough to go at, isn't it? And I think an important game concept is that each planet has its own independent um, uh, political system. Mm. But in between that, the Imperium kind of control. Yeah, yeah. And the other bit is that instantaneous communication between planets doesn't exist. So communication is restricted to the speed of travel. Mm. So if it takes a week, it'll take a week for a jump. It'll take a week for uh, information yeah. to get to from get one from one planet to the other. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. One system to another. So. In essence, it kind of creates that spirit of the 17th century mm. trade winds, doesn't it? Yeah. So communication uh, being restricted. And I think way. as well, it's a very, I mean, we've said, probably said this before, but it's a very late 70s, early 80s vision of the future. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there isn't any internet and things like that, which seems odd now when we yeah. recently started playing it again. And some aspects of it seem odd. And you have to kind of take it in the spirit within which it's intended or was intended then and accept that this vision of the future isn't isn't all that plausible anymore because we've almost spaffed some of it. Yeah, it's a strange thing, isn't it? Because it, it was um, produced in the late 70s, but mm. harks back to that a nostalgia for the 50s type mm. of uh, yeah, yeah. science yeah. fiction of uh, and Larry Niven, Purnell, mm. um, and... Uh, Martin Miller's quoted uh, Jack Vance's Demon Prince's uh, trilogy as, a, as an inspiration as well. And I, I'm always struck me by J.G. Ballard who said that um, we're all nostalgic for the future. Yes. Yeah. And it, it, does have, it does have that feel, playing Traveller now, it has that sense of nostalgia that the 80s had for the uh, 50s. Mm. On the, on the, um, on the grognardfile.com, there's been a lively discussion about the inherent conservatism mm. um, built yeah. into travel as well. Mm. Yeah, and that's interesting. And, and as well, to, to you know, it's like people say, you know, science fiction is about now rather than the future. And I think there's an element of that to travel as well, in that it, it's very, you know, 80s, Reaganomics. Thatcherite, trade, money, all those aspects kind of play into Traveller a little bit, yeah. which at the time were, were kind of the political ideas at the time. There still are political ideas, but they were very prevalent and I suppose fresh political ideas at the time. 
Yeah, it does play into that a little bit. Even though I think when we were thirteen and fourteen, we weren't really aware of it, you know. But it's definitely there. Yeah, it's a mix of monetarism and militarism. Yeah, it? <laughs> it is a bit. Yes. Yeah. 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 And I think the uh, portrayal of the Zodani uh, in particular, mm. because they're the yeah. exotic, uh, this kind of uneasy uh, Cold War between yes. the Soleimani and the Zodani. Yeah. And they're like an exotic uh, psionic race. Uh, and, and yeah, and, uh, the, the psychic stuff is interesting because it, it's, uh, and again, wouldn't been, wouldn't realise this at the time, this is a more sophisticated interpretation, but it's a bit like the Zodani have psychic abilities. Uh, and, and cultivate psychic abilities, you know, in the same way that the Stasi in East in Eastern Germany listened into people's phone calls. It's a little bit like that, isn't it? The idea that these strange people can read your thoughts and have special abilities is a little bit like you know the communists are listening to our phone calls and snooping on people yeah. and that kind of thing. There's an echo of that to it, really. Yeah, there's a Danny under the bed. Yeah. There's a Danny under the bed. Yeah. Um, so scouts then, scouts gave an opportunity for frontier narratives mm. um, to boldly go to the far corners of the universe. Well, it did, and I think what I liked about scouts was touching on what you just mentioned about the militarism of Traveller and the capitalist elements. That in the in the very early editions of Traveller, um, it was really a case of being a merchant, so joining the merchant services as a character background. Or joining the military, so being the Marines, the Navy, the Army, and the Scouts, although they were a kind of service, you know, they, they, it felt that the Scouts was kind of a, a slightly more maverick and more exciting service, uh, and it was the one that you always wanted to be. I think I think people always sort of thought the Scouts is a yeah. is a good thing to be because they're kind of explorers, you know, they're not quite as you know regimented as the Army or the Navy. Um, I think it was the hardest survival role, actually, the Scouts. It was a dangerous dangerous occupation. But I like the Scouts supplement because it gave more and fleshed out more what at the time felt like the most intriguing and exciting character background. And And the character background that fell in line more with what we wanted from a science fiction game. So of all the backgrounds, what you really wanted, that had been a scout, an explorer on the fringes of the known universe, was exciting. Whereas perhaps being a naval officer or a merchant didn't seem quite as exciting. So it was a good supplement because it expanded. It expanded what we wanted from the game, really, I think. Yeah, and a number of people have contacted me on Twitter and on other uh, on other methods of communication, exports and all those kind of things. They, they've uh, <laughs> mentioned that um, Mercenary, which was a similar yes. uh, supplement, yeah. um, they had a lot of affection for that. Mm. And they also noted that in Mercenary it's possible to have a skill of instruction to get over this idea. Yes, of that's true. There was, yeah. 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 Good. Okay then. So... Now, Scouts has been rewritten by Lawrence Whitaker, no less, who wrote the mm. Request 6 rulebook um, for Mongoose. So, excluding uh, what we're talking about here is uh, for the pricing. Mm. I want to get the price of the classic um, second-hand um, yep. Scouts edition okay. from back in the day. Okay. Do I win a bolt or something if I get all these right? Is it like bullseye? Yeah. <laughs> T- terms and conditions may apply. Terms and conditions apply, yes. <laughs> all right. Okay, okay, and the people at home. So, uh, is it one? Is it five pounds? Mm-hmm. Is it two? Fifteen pounds or three? Twenty-five pounds. 
Well, I've, I've been, I'm optimistic based on the, the, the miniatures going for 40. I, I'm going to say £25. £25. It's actually £15. Oh. Now, what, what Eddie's told me about these, about black books are they're quite easy to get hold of, but mm. they come in bundles ah, uh, right, usually. Yeah. So yeah. you have to buy a job lot sometimes. Yeah, buy the ones you don't want to get the one you do want. Multi-listing. And I think uh, we've kind of restricted ourselves to eBay for this game. But mm. also, if you go to places like Shop on the Borderlands and uh, places like that, they do regularly have these. So look out for them. Okay. Let's go on to the next one. Give that okay. a good roll. All right, there we go. That's 32. I know you thought that were five then, didn't you? But it's I didn't know what that was. I, I, I just think use a D100. <laughs> I, I don't get it. You just just use, use all the dice. <laughs> D60. It's Hang the on. most ridiculous concept I've ever heard. Roll that again because I've had that before. Go on, do it oh, again. Oh, I have to roll it again? Yeah. The D100 would be less chance of getting the same number. I'm not sure. advantage. Right. Uh, 56. Okay. Right then. Next one is uh, Alien Module 1, Aslan. Oh, right. Yeah. Adventure and intrigue mm. with a proud warrior race. So this is Scouts for Aliens, isn't it? It's, yeah. uh, <laughs> and I think uh, Travel was not blessed with a huge population of ready-made aliens. Um, I mean, the humble gro groat, for example. Mm. The groat appears in loads of adventures. That's basically a tiptoeing goat. It's a goat, isn't it? It's a goat, yeah. yeah. a goat. Yeah, but somehow stuck an R in. Call it a groat. It appears in loads of adventures, loads <laughs> of games designed. It's the best it. it could do. Yeah. <laughs> but for the major races, you've got Varga, mm. the dog-like race, uh, Kakri, which are centaurs, Droin, which are kind of a insect type, insect -type thing, type thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and Aslan, yeah. which are based on lions and the humanoid mm -hmm. lions, aren't they? And it's quite interesting because they base the racial characteristics on lions. So yes. They've got a slower metabolism so they can eat mm. and not have to eat for a while. Yeah. That kind of thing. Uh, and what's interesting is the uh, gender uh, differences as well. Um, so in, in the um, women have different occupations to the men. So the, uh, the men are fierce and warrior-like. And the women are usually scientists and mm. uh, that kind of that kind of nurturing yeah. type thing. So yeah, that's right. um, they've got some uh, in, in this book as well. There's some racial specific weapons. Now it's all good stuff, uh, with, but I do think this dependency on hybrid introduces introduces a duck factor to Traveller. <laughs> it does. It does a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I know that uh, you've been playing a Varga, haven't you, on our online game? Yeah. And you've been dogged by puns, haven't you? <laughs> I've been dogged by puns, yeah. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know where this conversation's going to lead us. Uh, that's oh, it. Dear me. But yeah, so I, I think I think that's uh, part of the problem with uh, uh, with it. But it is a great supplement. And one of my favourite bits is this uh, mini game. Because that's, yeah. that's one of the delightful things about Traveller. It turns everything into it a turns game. everything into another game, doesn't it? It does. So. I, I, li I like this as a supplement as well, and I think in, it's a shame that it took them quite a while to kind of come out with these supplements because this is what you needed. Um, you know, this is what I needed when I bought Traveller. 
uh, originally that you needed a bit more background and you needed that kind of depth of you know these because in the original rules the alien races are mentioned but you know it's quite vague isn't it yeah. and it does feel like oh they're just they're just lion people so they're just like lion people these are like dog people these are insect people and that's all they are really they're just like people but they're lions and what these supplements do is they go into it in a lot more depth and give those races a bit of color um, and make them more interesting uh, and and it, it it did need that, and they are quite good. But yeah. it's just a pity that they were a bit, a little bit later. Were they kind of mid eighties or something? Yeah, like that? yeah, they did come, they did come later. It came at around the time that they were reprinted. Mm. But well, this is this is the uh, mini game that I like. This is um, uh, Aslan word generation, and I think we should give it a go. Okay, are you ready? Okay, so. Pick a pick a word that you want to uh, want to generate in Aslan language. Um, well, straight off the top of my head, I would say two pair. <laughs> <laughs> what is it with you and Wigs? <laughs> right, a two pair. The Aslan word for two pair. So, first off, you have to uh, roll a d six to determine okay. the word length. Do I roll it? Yeah. Okay, so that's a two. So it's two syllables. Okay. And then we have to do the syllable structure. So a red and a white dice, roll that. Okay, so it's going to be um, two plus one. Okay, so next bit is we need to look at determining vowel. Okay, so I'm going to go on this vowel table. Okay. You need to roll a three. Uh, it's a, uh, sorry, no, you need to roll a white and a red. And that is a four and a two, so that's E A. That's okay. E A. E A. E A. Okay. It's a bit like um, countdown meets battleships, isn't it? It this? is a bit. Yeah. We could have just made a word up. But... <laughs> that would be the fun in that. No, there would be no fun in that, would there? I, I I can imagine spending hours translating <laughs> Necronomicon <laughs> With into dice rolls. Aslan, Aslan. <laughs> right. So let's do the next syllable. So okay. The last one ends in a vowel. So we've got to go back to the basic table and roll it again. So that's a three and a one. So that's a consonant and a vowel. So the initial consonant we're rolling from, so that's table six. So um, roll again. Got oh, people are following this. Yeah, roll again. One or two dice? Just, just one dice. Just one, all right, yeah. okay. Okay, that's a five. Yeah. So, and another one, so cross-reference. So that's a four and another one. Okay, so that's I'm on my vowel table, that's a TR, TR. Okay. Okay. Whew, right, hang on in there now. Right, let's, we're up to, uh, roll again. Uh, one, just, two, what, just, just one. Just one, just one. So on vowel table one, hang on. These are all A's, these, aren't they? Vowel table one, roll it anyway, go on. <laughs> right, I'm going cross for one and then a two, it's an A. Okay, so okay. that's all right. So there we go. The Aslan word for wig. So uh, uh, two pair. Two pair. It's probably a different word for wig. Yeah. Do you want to do that no, one as well? No, I don't. <laughs> no, I've got to go soon. Okay. I've got a bus to catch. <laughs> the Aslan word for two pair. Hey, do you want to pronounce that? Eatra. 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 Oh, is, so, that, is that an Eatra you're wearing? Yeah, that's it. Is he wearing an Eatra? Yeah, it's my natural mane. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. So, it's as easy as that. It's as easy as it's that. It's as easy as that, isn't it? You know, that's that's what role playing is all about. <laughs> it's, just, it's as much fun as rolling a character in Traveller. 
<laughs> so there you go. That's the uh, word generation. So if you want, <laughs> if you wanted, let's play our game now. So if you wanted to uh, play that at home, yeah, listeners, if you want to get a, a copy of this to play at home with all your family, uh, how much would you expect to pay? Would okay. it be one? Will it be five pounds? Two? Fifteen pounds? Or three? Twenty-five pounds. I'm going to say fifteen. Fifteen. Yeah. It's uh, £3.25. £25. It's actually on the, it's on eBay at the moment for £25. So there's a Christmas present for somebody there. Well, obviously, the, the you know, the word generation tables clinch it, don't they? Yeah. That's what's up the price, isn't it? it obviously. <laughs> okay. Let's do the uh, the next one. Okay. And roll the dice again. Okay. Whoa. One and a one. It's snake eyes. Uh-oh. So that, is that good or bad? I don't know if it's good or bad it's in this good game. Or bad in on my table. Hard to work out with the D66. Um, I don't know. <laughs> so it's the Traveller Adventure. Oh, right. So in 1982, when the games industry was uh, in its stride, they reformatted the uh, Traveller books and, and they put them all together into one rule book. I don't know if you remember this, but it, mm. it was illustrated. It was an illustrated book. Yes, it was. Book. It was a kind of yeah, better version, really, from that yeah. point of view. Yeah, some really good... I mean, the, the illustration of Patchy Book, there's some good ones by mm. uh, Liz Danforth, yeah. who's yeah, yeah. better known for uh, Tunnels and Trolls, yeah. but some really good stuff. And it was a time when um, games were trying to reach out into the mainstream, so it was published by Prentice Hall um, to put into bookshops. Yeah. And... Um, and at the same time as bringing out a new set of rules, they brought out the Traveller Adventure, which was the biggest campaign mm. pack so far for um, Traveller. And the idea of it is it, 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 it kind of adopts the format of campaign setting that Andy Slack advocates in his White Dwarf article, Backdrop to the Stars, in that it's a kind of planet-hopping uh, adventure, episodic adventure link leaping from planet to planet, meeting different patrons and agents with an overarching plot. It's quite a complicated plot, but it's set in the Aramis sector, which is on the fringe of the Imperium in a backwater of the Spinwood Marches, and it's been undeveloped. Uh, the alien Varga uh, across the Imperial border, and they began to get a taste for the exotic ag agricultural product, including groat, um, then they've got burgeoning trade routes and there's an increasing tension in the region. So there's two major shipping lanes who are manipulating the market forces to create a monopoly. And the play characters are a crew of a subsidised route or a fat trader, the March Harrier. And they have the opportunity to go off piste and explore the sector. Um, so it's a big campaign and we've actually played this three times. Mm, yeah, yeah. Now, the first time we played it, we don't have much memory of it because Eddie ran it, and by his own admission, we burned through it, didn't we, in a few days. Which we, we did. But I, 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 there's a reason for that because, I mean, the, the interesting thing, the way you've just described it then, you could have been uh, describing some, uh, you know, government enterprise allowance scheme, couldn't you, about trade routes <laughs> and subsidised liners. I mean, it's... Yeah. It, and I think, again, the first time we played it, we, we really... You know, we were again quite young and did, didn't really grasp some of those finer points of traveller. You know, I mean, we did want to be Han Solo, you know, yeah. and, and I don't think it's it's not really like that, is it? You know, yeah. so we did go through it quite quickly because I think Eddie um, 
cut bits out that seemed boring. And, and the problem was at that age, that means you cut a lot of it out because it all seemed a bit boring, yeah. <laughs> to be fair. And I, I don't really blame him. But I think that was our youth coming through then, you know. that. And the second time we played it, it's quite interesting because we played it, uh, we were a bit older, so we'd mm. be about 17, wouldn't yeah. we? And we played it with older players who were in the um, late 30s, 40s, didn't we? Yeah, so, yeah. So... These are we we joined them at the tail end of uh, the travel adventure. We were a bit worried, weren't we, that we'd uh, know what was going on? Yes, so we were. We were, but the way, we they, the way they played it, we didn't have a clue what was going on. So in the in the travel adventure, there's actually one uh, planet that the uh, plane captures go on, which is like a very bureaucratic mm, planet. Yeah, and uh, it's fitting for travel. It's all to do with paperwork and collecting paperwork. None of this stuff is on computer. It's all, yes, it's there's all, no computers. It's all forms in it, forms <laughs> Now, I remember Eddie actually hand-waved that through in 10 minutes. Yes, yes. Because, I, and again, I think that's because when we were younger, we, we didn't see the fun in it, really, you know. But when we played with the other group, they'd, they'd been doing it for about... Four weeks, haven't they? Yeah. Well, we. I think we, <laughs> no. We, we we joined them. They'd already been doing it for two weeks. Yeah. And we did four sessions. So of six, four hours. Six weeks on the bureaucracy planet. I think at the end of it, we wanted to shoot our way out, didn't we? We did. But they wouldn't have it. No. Because they were more mature than us. There must. There must be somewhere. There must be somewhere. I'll shoot your way out. And I think, in a way, it's. You see, again, it, it, it's one of those things with traveller. It sounds a little bit like we're kind of having a bit of a pop of it for being boring, but I think sometimes. It's an interesting game because what that planet is trying to make you do is it's provoking you to shoot your way out of it yeah. because it's getting you into a position where you get so frustrated that you're going to pull a gun on some bureaucrat and say, right, I want to get off this planet, forget the paperwork. It's provoking you to do that. But I think that's quite subtle. Yeah. And again, it was lost on us a little bit in our youth. It was only later on that we realised, and with that older group, we realise that this is what it's trying to do. It's trying to test you a bit, make you think about it in yeah. different ways uh, and challenge you whether are you going to shoot your way off the planet. Yeah. And now as uh, local government officers, we, of course, would uh, relish the opportunity. To well, I think as local government officers, we would we would walk it, wouldn't we? Yeah. It would take a match of minutes to get off that <laughs> planet, you know. <laughs> okay. And then finally, I final, we've actually revived this. I'm refereeing this online. Um, uh, using Roll20 and we've got six players, people that we've uh, not met before so there's uh, mm -hmm. uh, me refereeing it, Eddie's playing, you're playing it and a, a group of others uh, that we've met through uh, Twitter mm -hmm. and through this podcast um, and um, what I, I've tried to do with it because it lends itself to this is because we're only playing in fortnightly sessions at two hours each trying to hone it down to the incident, the key elements of the incident. Mm. Um, so it just goes to show that there's, it, it, there's three different ways of playing. Mm. And yeah. uh, uh, got that. And I must admit, you know, it's not for me to say, is it? But I've, it's quite. It's <laughs> for us out, to say, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite. It's it's turned out to be quite exciting because we've tried to adopt the dramatic beats of yes. a yeah. TV serial. But I, but I do think, going to what I was saying before, I think the reason for that is because we are older and I think in fairness to Traveller, it, it, it's quite a mature game. I think what it's presenting you with is something um, quite grown up as a role-playing game. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's why, back in the day, when we were 
you know, 13, 14 years old, it didn't quite gel with us because we were kids, you know, yeah, essentially. Yeah. And we wanted the things from a role-playing game that, you know, kids want. Whereas now, playing it online, we're all grown-ups. And, you know, we still want a bit of action and a bit of shooting and this kind of thing because it's a role-playing game, you know. But at the same time, we, there's a level of maturity where we realised that what motivates our characters and you know, the way the un travel universe works and some of the subtleties of it, which I do think were kind of lost. So whilst it's fair to say Traveller, when it was first published, was a bit sketchy and was lacking in certain details and bits and pieces, at the same time, our approach to it as 14-year-olds was probably also lacking a bit because we didn't quite understand some of those subtleties yeah. that were being presented to us, which now I think we do, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think what struck me about uh, reinterpreting um, the Aramis campaign, as it's called now by Mongoose, is that there are Jack Vantian elements, and I love that. Um, and that's the bit I've enjoyed, really. So I've really enjoyed re reviving that, and we're continuing that into the next year. So we'll carry on with that. So let's have uh, our game again. So let's see how much uh, to get hold of the travel adventure um a travel adventure red book mm -hmm. is it one 35 pounds is it two 25 pounds or three 15 pounds oh um 35 pounds it is 35 pounds yeah. well done you you won you've won a yacht <laughs> okay and roll again So that's uh, that's thirteen. Mm -hmm. Okay, next one. Now this might be a fumble for you. <laughs> you ready? Go on. As anti highlight. Oh dear. Oh dearie me. So this is a large imperial cruiser, a rules buckler, four large color, fourteen large color maps, a technical manual explaining the maps. You got two dice, a quick reference card, die cut figures in case you run out of minis. Uh, Loads of stuff in this box. What's not to like about it? Well, this, for me, was... Uh, I think I got this for Christmas when I was 14, 15. And it, it's, it's a classic role-playing experience, which, which I'm sure everyone has had, where you get a role-playing supplement that's lavish, and it's in a box, and you get it, and you want it, and you get it, and you open it, and you think, what the hell do I do with this? <laughs> what do I do with this? I, I It was a... Again, it was one of those odd things about Traveller, as I think you touched on uh, a while ago, that it had a habit of turning every supplement into a little game in its own right. So Azantia Lightning was a it was a series of coloured deck plans of a big starship, um, little counters for all the crew, and a little set of tabletop battle rules. Um, and I think there was a series of little scenarios that you could play out as, not so much a role-playing game, but as a tabletop Skirmish, of, skirmish, yeah, yeah that's yeah. right, a skirmish thing. And uh, what what was appealing about as anti lightning was that I'd read, I think, that it had a little a different combat system to Traveller. So it had a slightly more what I considered a, a better combat system where armor absorbed damage rather than mage is more difficult to hit, that kind of thing. Um, so there was that was useful, but it was very expensive. I mean, I, I can't remember now. I think it was like thirty five quid or something, which <laughs> which in those days was a lot of money. Yeah, it still is. Well, what's what's interesting is that um, we can't play our game because you can't get hold of it. It's not 
for love and money, we try to track it down on yeah. eBay. And uh, do you know what? I, I think I don't remember ever getting rid of it. This is like a lost lost treasure. This in my house. I don't remember ever getting rid of it. Oh wow! And I think it's in the attic somewhere. And I've looked several times and cannot find it. Like an RPG Indiana Jones. I've gone into the attic, raved the spiders, the giant spiders in the attic, looking for as anti highlighting, and I'm sure it's up there. I'm yeah. sure it is. I'll tell you, you can pay off your mortgage with your yeah. minis and your uh, yeah. anti highlighting. Yeah. yeah, but it was. I think it it was a disappointment really because it was you didn't know quite what to do with it. You know, it was like it was lavish. But what do I do with it? You know, and the rules, the the skirmish rules, only tweaked the combat system slightly. So you felt like you, you know, well, I hadn't paid a lot. My parents had paid a lot of money for a few extra combat rules, um, but there wasn't much more to it. You know, it's an odd, odd thing, and it did. Traveller did do that a lot, didn't it? There was something called May Day, wasn't there? And yeah, yeah. There was another one. Um, or there was a there's a worse one than that, wasn't there? Oh. Um, striker. 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 <gasps> that was a terrible game. That that was like tabletop, proper tabletop. Rules for sort of science fiction battles, wasn't it? It was a bewilderingly mathematical. Again, it's one of those things that you didn't want to do, but I was really keen on doing because it, were, were, yeah. it was a good way of using all those miniatures that you painted. Yeah, yeah. But it did. But it did. I, I remember buying it, and thinking that. But when you bought it, it wasn't like that. You couldn't really use the miniatures because it was like a, it was like a battle game. So you got all the little ca cardboard cutout counters of soldiers and uh, weapons of tanks and all this kind of thing, and it was. It just wasn't, although it was attached to a role-playing game, it was not really anything to do with the world of role-playing games. No. And I can remember, and the Zantai Lightning was a little bit like that as well. There was sort of a bit, there was something else really, masquerading almost as something to do with Traveller, but, but not really, you know. Yeah. Well, that's uh, the end of my table. What of those that we've picked do you think are the essential Items. If you if you had to take one home today, what would be the thing that you'd, you'd want to take away? Oh, well, I, I don't know really. It's difficult to say. I, I I mean, I would. I'm tempted to say the the Aslan module, the Aslan thing, but but I suppose you'd want the full set, wouldn't you? Yeah, um, you'd want all the alien races. But um, but I'd, yeah, I'd probably say the Aslan thing on, on the principle that. Of all the things we've talked about, that was the thing that added depth to the game and colour to the game and made it feel slightly more alive. Whereas that that some of the other things perhaps that wasn't really the case, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I have a fondness for the miniatures, but I suppose now, being older, you don't you don't really need the miniatures. They were important when we were younger to help us visualise the game. But um, no, the Aslan module. The alien modules were, were great, I think. Before you retire to your stateroom with your pot plant and your uh, <laughs> glass of zillion wine, uh, let me just ask you this, because although you know I'm a refereeing traveller now, uh, you still have a fondness for science fiction role-playing. Yeah. And I know that recently. Yes. This isn't very grognardy at all, It's is not, it? is it? No. You've got the rules to Numenera. I have, yeah. And we haven't played it yet. No, no, not yet. And you've written a blog post on mm -hmm. thegrognardfiles.com about getting your head around the rules. Yeah. So what does Numenera do well that Traveller, in, in your view, hasn't? Well, I think the, the difference is, I, I mean, Numenera is, 
I suppose it's like science fantasy more than science fiction. So Numenera is set sort of a billion years in the future. Um, and there have been kind of eight great civilizations on Earth that have risen and fallen. So the future that you're dealing with is, is almost magical in that there are remnants of technology that are indistinguishable from magic to the inhabitants. So um, it's not... It's sort of science fiction, but also more science fantasy. I mean, it, it reminds me a little bit more of Hawk, the Hawk Moon books by Moorcock. It's a bit like that kind right. of thing. Um, but what, what I think is interesting, and what it does differently from Traveller, is Traveller, um, whilst you, you're right, Traveller echoes the science fiction of the past. I think what Traveller tries to do, at least in part, is put forward a plausible vision of the future. So a, a vision of what it might be like 5,000 years in the future, something like that. Um, and, of course, that's what makes some of it a little bit funny now because, of course, it's been overtaken by reality. So, yeah, there is no internet in travel, but you think, well, well there is an internet. Um, well, Numenera does it because it's set so far in the future and there have been these civilizations that have risen and fallen, you know. It, it doesn't try to say this is what it's going to be like in the future. It just says, look, this is a science fantasy game set in the distant future. And there's no reference point where you can say, this, you, you wouldn't play Numenera and go, well, this this is ridiculous. Where's the internet? Where's this? Where's that? This it wouldn't be like that a billion years in the future because it's so far, far in the future that that's not really an issue. Yeah. But I think what Traveller does, it tries to kind of build a future you know, and then this is some noble pursuit to try and do this. There's nothing wrong with this, but it tries to build a future that is plausible. And sometimes now that that can be a little bit difficult because you think, well, see, when you describe it like that, it does sound like a very Jack Vanteian type of world, that dying earth type. It is world. a bit, yeah, yeah. There is there are a lot of echoes of that kind of thing in it. You know, where someone who can use magic in Numenera is essentially someone who can harness kind of strange energies and nanobots that are kind of floating around from these previous intergalactic civilizations that have collapsed. So it's a kind of pseudo-medieval world, but with all these remnants of weird technology that are completely incomprehensible to the inhabitants um, and, are, and, are effect, and, are effect, and are effectively yeah. their point of view. Um, but that's a very different take on science fiction role-playing to Traveller. What Traveller tries to do is said this is what it might be like yeah. i think at least that's the way i see it it sort yeah. of gives a tries to give a plausible vision of the future yeah know? yeah okay well thank you for that uh, i'll let you uh leave us until next time thank you very much thank you post bag i invited listeners to share their experiences of playing traveler supplements from back in the day the ex-boat has arrived at Dirk Towers, and it's been awash with correspondence about listeners' relationship with those little black books. But before we go into that, though, I want to acknowledge that there's been some more feedback on iTunes. This comment from City Slicker caught my eye, who described the podcast as like having a brew and a pack of jammy dodgers. I'm more of a hobnob man myself, but I'm grateful for these reviews, and it does get the Tim Cookerbots excited and push the podcast forward in the results so that other listeners can find us. Also, there's no actual way of knowing how many people are listening via iTunes, so if you stick some stars on it, 
it proves to me that there's life out there. Uh, as I've said earlier, there's been a lively conversation on the grognardfiles.com site too. Uh, there's been other signs of life on Twitter, at the Grognard File, and on Google+. Where I was sent this by Michael Barry. Mission on Mithril was a gift that kept on giving. Our team kept returning to that planet for various times during our campaign. First as a mere stop-off, and then to do some exploration in the adventure. That was suspended, and then returned for an out outright all guns assault. During the Fifth Frontier War, the Sword Worlds invaded and established a base in the location of the starport. The player characters had a 800-ton Merc cruiser and the mission of attacking the Sword World base. I gave them options of doing scans, which was simulated by four different transparency overlays with felt-tip felt pen marks representing UV infrared, uh, decytometer and neutrino scans. Each scan required an orbital pass and provided more information but gave the sword worlders more time to entrench their defences. In the end, the PCs bribed the base commander to join their side. The ultimate but inevitable portrayal was, well of course it was delicious for all concerned. The Sword World base commander then became an ongoing adversary. Brilliant. Thanks for that, Michael. It's great when an arch enemy grows organically from, from the campaign. It's sometimes difficult to predict who will be the reoccurring villain, but when it happens, it's very satisfying. Here's another Google Plus contribution, this time from Andrew Cousins. Really enjoying the show especially the Call of Cthulhu and Traveller episodes, which have kept my dimly flickering RPG flame alight. I started playing Dungeons and Dragons back in 1983, but sadly never had chance to play Traveller or any other RPGs until much later in life, as my parents, rather inconsiderately, decided to move house, thus separating me from my gaming group, who just picked up AD&D and Traveller. I managed to play just a handful of RPGs in my late teens, AD&D and the fantastic Paranoia RPG. Anyhow, fast forwarding to 2013, I found myself living in Japan, a father, a husband and determined to get back into gaming and catch up on all the great modules and systems that I missed back in the day. After spending some time with D&D and Call of Cthulhu, it was time to tra tackle Traveller. I'd seen the box as a young grognard, but never had the chance to even look inside. One trip to drive through RPG and parting with some hard-earned yen, a couple of weeks' wait and I had the print-on-demand edition of the Traveller book sitting in my trembling hands. I wasn't disappointed. Like Blythe, I'm a big Blake 7 fan and couldn't wait to get started. I spent a lot of time trying to find the right classic traveller module to play. I didn't want anything involving too much space travel, and I really wanted to avoid any space combat at first, to give myself a chance to settle into the system that was nothing like I'd seen before. 
I knew I'd probably only be able to find a couple of players, so I wasn't sure how much time they would have. So, after some extensive research, I settled on Death Station, the 1981 third double ad adventure from Frank Chadwick and Mark Miller. It had horror uh, and mystery to be solved, a deserted and awesome-looking space station stroke laboratory ship, and a great hook which the players started off marooned on a small mining planet, needing needing to earn enough money to pay for their off-world tickets. It also seemed pretty combat light. So I diligently set up everything on Roll20, chose some fitting music and was ready to go. The players started in a canteen on the mining colony in Gadden and they were approached by a patron and the game was on. I'll try and keep spoilers to a minimum, but what followed was five hours of some of the most fun role-playing I've ever experienced. The players travelled to an eerily silent laboratory ship via an air raft, discovering many of the lights had been smashed, and those that weren't were dim and flickering. The ring-like shape, shape of the station, with its curving ceilings, obscured the character's line of sight adding to the tension. There were creaks and groans from the ship. There was horror, blood and chases and the mystery of what nefarious experiments had been carried out on the ship at such a backwater system. It kept the players constantly interested. Don't mention the meat locker or the mutants. Happily, both the players and characters survived their terrifying ordeal and were able to collect their just reward from their patron back on Gadden. Although, personally, I was a little disappointed that they didn't steal the laboratory ship, sell it to some dodgy figure in a seedy bar, and continue their adventures on the Solomarini Rim as fugitives. Although it's basically a dungeon crawl in space, Death Station was enjoyed by everyone, and Matt and Ash my awesome players, expressed that they really like to move on to something more sandboxy and start exploring the universe. Having seen a sketch of Winchell Chung's Anignova, go on and Google it, an alien relic, I was sure that this derelict ship was something that they'd find floating in space, Blake Seven style, and allow them to begin their adventures. Sadly, it wasn't to be. Life, as usual, got in the way, and Death Station was the first and last game I ever played of Classic Traveller. I'm still hoping to launch a more regular game organised in the future, but it may take a while. Thank you, Andrew. If you enjoy actual play presentations, you can watch Andrew's campaign on YouTube. If you search for Traveller Classic RPG, Death Station. It's very entertaining. I'm going to close the Traveller file for now. During the course of researching this podcast and reviving the campaign online, I realised that Traveller has never really gone away. Unlike many of the other games we'll cover in this series of the podcast, it's an old school game that's been left relatively untouched since it was originally released. It still has an active following, and the game's original designer, Mark Miller, 
continues to have ambitious projects for the universe that he created. We haven't really touched the derivations of the game, such as Twilight 2000, and there was a point in the early 90s when a games designer's workshop would stick the name Traveller on nearly everything they released, even if it wasn't relevant. I'm going to put the file back on the shelf now, but like RuneQuest, it might come down again to explore some more areas. Speaking of RuneQuest, it would be remiss of me not to mention that at the time of recording, December 2015, a refreshed reprint of the classic RuneQuest 2 rules is on Kickstarter. The campaign is in its final days, it's been funded and lots of exciting stretch goals have been released, such as a reprint of Apple Lane, Cults of Prax, Cults of Terror, and if you're listening as the podcast hits you in Podbox, rush to Kickstarter now and join the tribe. KSEM have generated a lot of excitement with this campaign. Now, it's not for me to say that we were single-handedly responsible for reviving the interest in the rules, thanks to the first episodes of Grognard Files, which were all about RuneQuest. That's for other people to speculate upon. But I'm looking forward to getting my copy. I've gone in big. At the Rune Lord Priest level, among the many treats included in the package, is a facsimile of the original playtest edition, where we're promised marginalia, evidence of cut and pasting over the pages, notes and amendments. I imagine Judge Blyther will be in hog heaven, comparing and contrasting the first published edition with this draft. As we say around our way, whatever blows your frock up. As for me, I'm interested in reading the specially commissioned introduction by Greg Stafford and Steve Perrin, and learning more about the genesis of the game. I'm seeing this as an investment, and whatever happens, the FPO must never know. With all the renewed interest in Ringquest, I'm also pledging to run a classic online game later in 2016, using one of the classic supplements. I'll let you know more about that nearer the time. The next episode of the Grognard Files will be slightly different because I'll be reaching down the file that's labelled Games Cons, looking at old school gaming conventions in general and covering Dragon Meat 2015 in particular. We went to that the fantasy London for a few eventful days and attended Dragon Meat. We haven't been to a convention for 30 years, so the podcast will cover the games we played, the things we learned, the people we met, and the stuff we bought, both old school and new school. Eddie was let out of his shed, and we set him a 20 quid challenge to find something old and interesting. In the next episode, we'll unveil what he discovered. I don't think the traders in the trade hall quite knew what hit them. Suffice to say, he hit a crit on his bargaining roll. After that, we'll be opening the file on Stormbringer, fantasy role-playing in the world of Elric. Michael Moorcock, Steve Perry, Ken Santandra, it doesn't get much better. Until then, I'm DirtTheDice at gmail.com. Adios, amigos.